morning. Um, today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God. A very good morning to everyone. Uh, from where I'm standing, uh, there's lots of space between you, uh, as perhaps you feel a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Uh, but it's so good that we are here, and I'd like to just encourage us to start a little bit differently this morning, if you wouldn't mind. Move closer to the person next to you. And in, in a minute, I'll just give us a minute, could you just, just with one person next to you, just spend a minute in prayer. Would you do that? Pray for, let's pray for our church this morning, and pray for our time together as we spend time in God's Word, uh, that God would build us up as a body. Shall we do that together? Just a minute or two, pray for one another, and I'll pray for us when we're done. Let us uh, pray together. Our Father, as we've come this morning, we ask now that you would give us what our hearts truly need. That gracious word of God that calms our fears, stills our heart, 
because it points us to Jesus Christ. So this morning we ask that in our time together, your spirit would preach and point us to Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for, uh, thank you for following uh, what I asked you to do. Uh, following Jesus uh, is the title of our sermon this morning. And these 11 verses that Deborah read for us uh, will be what we focus some time in. But what does it mean to follow? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Following literally means to go after, to move behind someone. It is a word that parents use, that teachers use, that uh, occasional lay people recruited to be preachers use. Uh, authorities use them to say, do as I say. Parents insist that children follow their instructions and they are often asking children to do things that they themselves are following as they have learned. Things like how you cook, how you fold your clothes, how you clean your house. And some of us have very specific instructions about how we do these things and we expect, we expect, one another to, uh, we expect our children to follow them. Uh, if you are a follower in a team or an organization, you have a set of roles that everyone plays and there are instructions that are given for how the team operates and you follow those roles, you follow the leader. Or if you're in a religion or a philosophy, you follow a way, you follow a school of thought uh, and you associate yourself with a body of teaching. So we have followers of Buddha, followers of Confucius, followers of uh, whatever school of thought it is that you, that you embody. And more, more recently, we have following as a term that we apply uh, to social media. So we say, I follow Taylor Swift, I follow Obama, I follow at real Donald Trump, I follow this and I follow that. Uh, and what does that mean? That just means that whatever content they generate, well, it pops up on our little device and we decide if we want to interact with it more, we like it, we share it, we retweet it. And then maybe a year, uh, an hour later, we pull the same thing out and we do the exact same thing. That, that is another way of following someone. Okay, real question. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Does he give you specific instructions throughout the day? A man who 2,000 years was crucified, dead, and buried, who was then raised by God and now is alive, does he give you instructions during the day to tell you how to fold the clothes, how to cook the rice? How to... Is that what you understand by following Jesus? Or, like I said just now, are you part of his organization? Are you part of his team? Is there a role that you play? Do you follow him in that way? Or is it, a, is it a more of a philosophical thing that I'm a philosophical follower of Jesus? His golden rule or his great commission, whatever the body of teaching, I kind of subscribe to that more or less. Or are you a social media follower of Jesus? Every week, maybe his content pops up on your feed for an hour and a half as we come here and you like, share, retweet, interact with it. And then you walk on and then you go on with your day. No, it's a real question. How do you follow Jesus? Uh, and at this time, perhaps more than, uh, more than, since for quite a while, I think the world watches how we follow Jesus and what we mean when we say we follow him. Uh, Luke chapter 5 lays out for us what Luke wants us to see about following Jesus from his first followers how he called them, how they responded to him, and how that represented for them a change in the way they lived their lives. 
We, we've already heard from uh, Uncle CC about a man who, who models this for us. And we're going to dive into looking what this means, hopefully, for each one of us. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, are set by the Sea of Gennesaret, which is uh, the Sea of Galilee. And at this part of the narrative, Jesus is becoming more and more famous. His fame is growing as he's, ex- as he's accelerated by his authoritative teaching, his power to cast out demons and heal the sick. People are flocking to him because he's a rising star. Uh, they want to hear, they want to experience the teaching of Jesus. Uh, and Luke tells us why in verse 1. They were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Pastor Oliver told us last week that the word of God, teaching it, was the priority of Jesus. He was a teacher most of all. And even here, this early phase, people recognized that what he was saying represented God's own word. And so they were pressing in on him. I wonder what picture comes to your mind as these people are, are kind of moving towards him and, and, and you can actually see Jesus almost just saying, oh, okay, this is a little bit too much. It's a little bit too much. Because as he saw two boats by the lake as, and he saw that the fishermen in them had packed up and were done for the day, essentially, that's what verse 2 says. They had gone out of them, they were washing their nets. He actually recruits them to be his mobile stage uh, people. He takes one of those boats, he says, I'm going to get into one of your boats, uh, uh, Simon, and could you just push out to the water a little bit so that we can get some distance from the crowd? It's an unusual picture because you and I, I think, would imagine that if someone wants to hear the gospel, you, you don't move away from them, right? If, you, if someone wants to, kind of like you guys, if someone wants to hear the gospel, you should move towards them. But actually, Jesus moves away from them. And, and, and why is that? Well, practically, he, he wants to put some distance between them. You think about it. Because he knows, he knows that people want to come up close to him, experience his healing and power, but he actually just wants to teach. He's put some distance between them so that he doesn't have people disrupting his teaching. So he moves away so that he can actually speak to more people. This is a a Jesus who surprises us in some ways. He gets into the boat, sits down, and speaks loudly so that the hundreds and thousands of people can hear him. And so he speaks. And what was the content of what he was speaking? Actually, all the Gospels tell us that the main message of Jesus was that the kingdom of God had come. The kingdom of God had come. And we see this uh, parallel, the parallel text to this one in Mark chapter 4. So this is uh, the account, more or less, in Mark chapter 4. It's the parable of the sower and the four soils. It's a parable that many of us know, and it describes how a, a sower sows seed And there are four different types of soils that describe different responses to the seed that is sown. This parable actually represents four different responses to the gospel. You have the the seeds that are uh, sown by the road, seeds that are sown on thorny soil, on rocky soil, and all of those don't really last. The only one that really does is on good soil, verse 20. Verse 20 goes, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. In other words, 
Jesus from this boat is actually teaching and speaking to them about teaching and speaking to them and how they respond to what he's saying. This is not insignificant. The soil of our hearts as we receive the words of Jesus is what Jesus is talking about. What type of people hear and respond to the words of Jesus? Jesus' point here is that he wants us to know that hearing his word is best received by those who bear the fruit when they accept his word. After he's done teaching, Jesus turns to his friend in the boat, uh, the owner of the boat, a fisherman named Simon. We know him more as Simon Peter. And Peter asks, uh, rather Peter, no, Peter doesn't ask anything. Peter wants to be left alone. But Jesus asks him to put the boat out into deeper waters. In other words, set out into the Sea of Galilee. And he gives Peter there a strange instruction. He says, go out, drop down the nets into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter's reaction is perplexion. He, is, uh, he struggles with this. Actually, Simon, Peter already knew of Jesus. The chapter before, we know that Jesus actually visited his mother-in-law and healed his mother-in-law, which gives us a sense that actually Peter knows something of this man. And having sat in his boat pretty much all day for the teaching, Peter's actually sat through all his teaching. And so he says, Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Let's spend some time thinking about what kind of a response this is. This man who has been working hard all day, who calls Jesus master, not rabbi, but the word here is apistata, which is a word that means leader or commander. It's a word that actually underscores the authority of Jesus unto himself, not teaching, uh, derived, teaching authority derived from the synagogue or from academia. It is a word that, that underscores his own authority. Leader is what he says to Jesus. Master. But he wants to make a point to Jesus. He says that, Jesus, I'm not a lazy man. I'm not, I'm not a person who's been spending all my time twiddling my thumbs. I've been working hard all night. All night I've been working me and my partners, in these very waters. Uh, I'm not a fisherman, but I'm told by fishermen that the best time to catch fish is at night. Uh, and we see that modelled here. Uh, and, but these men, despite being great fishermen, they've had the worst possible night. They've been up all night and no fish. Uh, in other words, Peter was actually trying to underscore to Jesus, I hear you, but as a professional fisherman, and based on the last 24 hours of data, this doesn't quite work out uh, too well. Uh, everything I'm, I'm going through contradicts what you are saying. What did, would this carpenter from Nazareth know about fishing anyway? But the second half of his sentence is, at your word I will let down the nets. At your word means because you said so. Because it was you that said so. Because of what you have told me. Now we don't know if Peter here was reasoning in his mind that okay, maybe if I do this, I will get fish. Or maybe if I do this, Jesus will like me more. Or maybe I'll have favour with him and he'll do something else for me. We don't know exactly that. But what we do know is that he was thinking about Jesus himself. His words tell us so. He says, Master, at your word, 
I will let down these nets. So you see, Peter immediately is in a different category from all the crowds that pressed in to hear the Word of God. See, these crowds came, they, they wanted to be taught, they wanted to learn. But Peter actually, being up close, is now given an opportunity not just to hear, but to immediately obey. And to his credit, Peter models obedience. Now, I can't remember where I heard uh, this piece of information. Maybe it was from my mother, who's over there, or maybe it was from someone who's a, fr- uh, someone who's a friend who's a mother. Uh, but I remember hearing this, that true obedience is ICE. I-C-E. Immediate, cheerful, and exact. And I, although I don't know if my mom said it, I can imagine her saying it. Uh, and, I can, and I can imagine uh, the, the cheer with which she told me that. Uh, obedience is immediate, cheerful, and exact. Uh, obedience does not say, I'll do it later. It doesn't say, if I have to. And it doesn't say, I'll do the spirit of what you said, but maybe not the exact thing you said. The Bible tells us that obedience to Jesus is one of the prime marks of a disciple. Heeding His word and being swift to obey is what sets apart those who genuinely follow Christ. Jesus Himself tells us how seriously we should take this. In Luke chapter 6, two chapters down, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Wow, those are heavy words. (laughs) I can't even imagine Jesus saying that to me. Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you? He goes on, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Uh, These verses lay out the familiar children's song. Uh, I learned it as a child. The wise man built his house upon the rock and the sand and the run. And and as a child, maybe the, the song concealed the true meaning of what Jesus was actually saying. Uh, Jesus is actually saying that whether or not we choose to build our lives on Jesus Christ, whether or not we choose to take His word seriously and obey or not, it will be shown because a storm or a stream will come. Without a doubt, and the foundations will be revealed. Friends, this is a promise certain that we will one day all be separated into two categories. One category will, because of the storm, reveal that our foundations are not Christ's words at all, but our own opinion, or our thoughts, or the ways of the culture, or the ways that we have been formed in moral education. And the other group will have a life that says, my, my life, entire life, is based on the words of Jesus. Which group are you in? Have you committed yourself today 
to the Word of Jesus Christ. Not just to hear it, but to do it. Have you dug deep into the soil of your heart and planted foundations in His Word? This is a real question. When the storms of life hit us, coronavirus or otherwise, and something cuts you, what will you bleed? When it hits you, what will your foundations be revealed to be? Friends, as we grow as a church, our hope is that this church will be rooted not on opinion, not on pastor, not on philosophy, but on the Word of God. It is our hope that again and again and again, as storms hit us, we will reveal what we are. It will show that our foundation is God's Word. That we will go back to the Bible, not proudly, not arrogantly, but showing that we are built on the Word of Christ. Friends, if that's our desire, and I hope it is, how is it reflected in our lives? I don't mean to embarrass anyone, but honestly, when was the last time you touched your Bible with the intention to obey it? A really good example of this is whether or not in your life, somewhere in your life, maybe it's on your phone in a note, or maybe it's in a, in a notebook somewhere, you have intended to write down what God's Word says. It's a simple point. If we've come intending to obey, we will intend to listen, to write down, and plan to obey. If we don't, then it's just information flowing through us. Like any other tweet, like any other article, which you and I, I'm sure, are bombarded with all day. Application point for us, a simple one. Write notes. Reread those notes. Plan to mine those notes, not for information, but for obedience for this day. In Luke 11, when Jesus is heckled by a lady, it's a, it's a funny account in uh, verses 27, 28, he's moving on the street and then this lady suddenly shouts out to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. It's quite funny because I've never had that experience. I don't know about you. You're going about, you're ministering and, so, and someone suddenly shouts to you, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts. That... I've never heard that. But the even funnier thing is what Jesus shouts back in verse 28 and you can kind of see him walking and he just goes, his answer, which is, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So significant is it to our master that even along the street, as someone was blessing him, he said, no, you're blessing me, but I'll bless you by saying, why don't you plan to obey the Bible? That's real blessing. In 1986, uh, some archaeologists dug up a 2,000-year-old fishing boat at the south of Kibbutz Ginosa in the Sea of Galilee. I'm not even going to pretend I know where that is, but it's in Israel. And this is the boat. Uh, they dug this out 2,000 years ago. Oh, not 2,000 The boat is 2,000 years ago. They dug it, in, they dug it up in uh, 1986. Uh, they call it the Jesus Boat. So if you'd like to Google that, you can do that later on. The Jesus Boat. Uh, and they've dated it using radiocarbon analysis and the pottery samples in the soil. And the boat itself, about 8.1 meters by 2.3 meters. But the critical point is that based on the size and its design, they've concluded they can hold about 15 men. 15 men. 
So you can imagine that in pews, I think that's about three pews, uh, maybe, maybe three, three, pews by, three pews by three pews. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and that gives us a sense of the size of the space that Jesus and Simon are in. And it also gives us a sense of the scale of the fish that they hauled up. Uh, verses 6 and 7 tell us that when Simon obeyed the words of Jesus, they enclosed a large number of fish so that their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, this miraculous catch is described here in, great, in, in very little detail. And you need some imagination as you think it through. Uh, Simon needs help. He waves his buddies over. Maybe he was the only one that set out. They were by the shore. They didn't want to come out because they thought we're done for the day. So, they, so he waves at them and they pull this thing up and they keep pulling and they keep pulling and they see Simon's boat kind of tottering over, Jesus stabilizing himself for balance, a real commotion, the 15-man boat filled to the brim. And maybe they're thinking to themselves, what a haul, we're rich. And so they go back to the shore they haul the fish out of the boat. They profess to follow Jesus. They ask him, Jesus, please stay with us all the time. Let's set up a supply chain. Let's, let's scale up our operations. Let's make a profit. Let's, let's really reap the max dividends out of this thing. Jesus, you just keep doing the fish thing. We'll supply the labor. Or maybe we can, with this proceeds, we can start a seminary. You can write a book. We can proclaim the kingdom of heaven right here. And we'll worship you, Jesus, God of Galilee. That's not what happens. But with this miraculous catch of fish, honestly, what would you do after? What would your immediate reaction be as you were standing there in the boat? You pull up all this amazing fish, you've been humbled, all of your professional knowledge has been overturned. No, really, what would you do? What would your reaction be? Hallelujah, glory to God. Let's do something amazing with this fish. Simon's reaction is instructive for us because it shows us what real followers of Jesus do. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. How, what a strange response uh, that there amongst all of this fishy fish, Simon had this moment of great realization that this fish doesn't matter at all. This fish, this profit, this gain, this professional success counts for absolutely nothing. So falling to his knees in defeat, in humility, in brokenness, he says, Lord, Depart from me. You see, the realization that Simon had is that the Lord God Almighty is in my boat. His eyes were open not to the fish, but to Jesus himself. This man who spoke about the kingdom of heaven like seeds had sowed one in his heart. And a sprout had come out. A sprout that says, you are God. You must be God. Can you see the other half of that sentence? 
And if you are the Holy One of Israel, I'm a sinner. Friends, this is the way disciples respond to Jesus Christ. We see ourselves rightly as we see Him rightly. As we see that He is holy, we see that we are not. As we see that He is worthy of all glory and praise, that He knows all things, the depths of Galilee and the depths of my heart. We say, Lord, I am a sinful man. And I'm not worthy for you to come and be close to me. I'm not worthy for you to be in my boat. When we see God in Christ, we are provoked. Provoked to humble ourselves. Exodus chapter 20 and Isaiah 6 show us that actually this is the same pattern throughout the Bible. This is not a new thing. Uh, There on Mount Sinai, as the Lord God manifests Himself in a theophany of thunder and lightning flashing on Mount Sinai, the people seeing the glory of God, they actually tell Moses, Moses, can you be the one speaking to us? Don't let God speak to us in case we die. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, in the temple, as he sees God's glory unfurling in the temple, opening up before him and his train filling that temple scene, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The language both times, as well as in Peter, is language of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the language of people poor in spirit, to use Matthew 5 language in the Beatitudes. People who are poor in spirit, who receive the kingdom of heaven, whose hearts say, Jesus, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not. You've seen the depths of my heart. You've seen my selfishness, my greed. You've seen my my lust, my fear. The words of John Calvin, the theologian who wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, help to explain this phenomenon. I'm going to read a longer quote. The quote that Calvin writes is, When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their own insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. In other words, we will never really believe our insignificance until we see the significance of God. That's what happens in this boat. And the confrontation that is given to us today as we ponder it is, have you seen yourself rightly? Have you seen God rightly. You can't follow Him otherwise. You see, a desire to obey Jesus and hear His His Word and obey Him is great. But if we don't see ourselves and Him rightly, we will soon be driven to present our spiritual performance and merit to Him as what earns His favour. And so if we are to be true followers of Christ, we have to see that not only does He call us to obey, but that in His holiness and in my unrighteousness, actually I'm not able to. 
So our hearts are now in the right place. Uh, years ago, uh, brother who is here, actually brother Aaron Lam, uh, gave a really good illustration in one of the Bible studies we were at. We were talking about how do we remember ourselves and God rightly? What's a practical way that I can remember who God is and remember who I am? Because I need to know this every day. If not, I'll be driven to all kinds of, of uh, inappropriate ways of trying to obey Him. Do, do, you, know, do you know what I mean? So, uh, Brother Lam came up with this uh, sharing, which I, I have remembered these years. And he said, uh, every morning when I brush my teeth, hopefully you brush your teeth, every morning when you brush your teeth, you look in the mirror, you hold your toothbrush, and you ask yourself three questions as you brush your teeth. Question number one, who am I? Question number two, whose am I? Question number three, and how am I going to live today? It's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? Wait till you hear the answers. So you brush your teeth. Who am I? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Whose am I? I belong to Jesus, the Holy One. And how am I going to live? Today I'm going to live trusting in Him. Not looking to myself. Trusting in Him. Who am I? Whose am I? And how am I going to live? The last point of our sermon today, in verses 10 and 11, show us what else Jesus says as he, is, as he ministers to these men struck by astonishment and fear. He turns to Simon in verse 10 and he says to Simon, now on his knees, asking Jesus the Holy One to depart. He says, Simon, do not be afraid. I love these words of comfort. They are one of Jesus' common phrases that he uses as different ones realize who he is. It shows us a Jesus who is tender, gentle, understanding, empathetic. He knows that these men are afraid. He recognizes that these fish have scared these men. He knows that his power is alarming and he gives them words of comfort. Last week, we learned that Jesus' words are authoritative, that He has authority in His commands and His power so that illness and demons are gone as He declares them to be. Those same authoritative words from Jesus now are authoritative words of comfort. He says, with all of that authority, do not be afraid. In other words, I command you, do not be afraid. Friends, these, these, are, these are real words of comfort for us today. That our Jesus is the Jesus who says, do not be afraid. Now, all week long, I, uh, in my job, I, I do social media monitoring. and So I, I read a lot of internet stuff, which makes me a very miserable person at night. Uh, because all day long, I've, I'm filling my, my mind with toxicity. And, and then I go home to my wife, and then she, she, she kind of just listens to me and whine about my work. Um, and, and I feel all this fear. I don't know about you. I feel it, and I see it you know, in the world around us. Uh, as people are worried, people actually who went to the supermarket not intending to be afraid, come out afraid. You know? People who go to the hospital not intending to be afraid, they come out afraid. Um, your Jesus says, do not fear. 
you have a Jesus that says, do not fear. Uh, All week long, I've been humming some of these words to my heart, which are from this hymn. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Oh, brothers and sisters, what are you whispering to your heart as you go about your day? What are you saying to your heart as you feel fear? Do you tell yourself, oh, this this world and its problems, these challenges and these difficulties, these people and their difficulties are so great. Is that what you're whispering to your heart? Or do you whisper to your heart, but my Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do you whisper it to one another? Do you communicate this in your texts to one another? Do you say to one another, Jesus says, do not be afraid. That's who we worship. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just say, fear not. He also says, go forth. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You know, Jesus goes from words of comfort to calling, from tenderness to tasking. He enlists these men into his work. Uh, at Klops, again, Pastor Oliver said that this is the great commission in seed form. And I remember thinking that Jesus being so kind, he's recruited these fishermen to join in his work. It, but he, the way that he says it, is in terms that they can relate to. Speaking to fishermen, he says, you used to catch fish, now you catch men. How kind of Jesus to explain work, ministry work, to us in terms that we can understand based on our secular work. But what exactly is he saying? From pushing out from the shore and throwing out nets to catch dead fish, these men are going to push out They're going to leave their homes. They're going to go out. They're going to throw something that's not nets. They're going to throw something much better out and pull in not dead fish, but living men. One of the commentators points out that the phrase catching men here is a combination of the word for for living as well as for catching. In other words, it's not catching dead things. It's catching living things. It's hunting, actually, not not, uh, dragging in the dead fish. It's hunting men, actually. In other words, these men are going to go out and bring in the life. They're going to bring in the living. They're not going to bring in death. And that is a great picture for the Great Commission, isn't it? That as we go out and we throw out the net of the gospel, as we go out and proclaim the kingdom of Christ Jesus, we are not calling bad people to come in and be less bad. We are calling dead people to life. And as the Spirit of God enables them to respond, they live and they come and they trust in Jesus. We are are sowers of seed and when it lands on good soil, it produces life. So when these men landed on the shore, they left everything that they had and they followed Jesus. They came back to the shore, they put what was down in their hands, they fixed their eyes on Him and they went everywhere He went doing everything with him, listening to all his words, and doing everything that he wanted them to do. And in time, 
the Holy Spirit would cause them to remember all the teachings of Jesus, and these men would become his representatives, his apostles, as we will be studying in weeks to come. Following Jesus is taking up his work, but you cannot take up the work of Jesus unless you put something down. Verse 11 makes it clear to us, and Luke is deliberate. In fact, all the, all the, the gospel writers are deliberate that when we follow Jesus, we leave everything we have. What does that mean? What is Jesus calling you to put down? Does it mean less work time? Does it mean less leisure time? Less free time? Less family time? Less retirement time? Do we dare to even say that Jesus is actually calling us to take up a cross and follow Him? Again, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says these words. As someone says to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him in verse 58, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. But the other person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, if we are to follow Jesus Christ, take up his work, we have to put something down. This afternoon, would you spend some time with your close friends, if, you ha- if they are here, or your spouse, and have a real conversation. What have I put down to take up the work of Jesus? Oh no, actually dear, you know, honestly, I mean, I think it's a good spiritual principle that we are called to. I mean, all of us are supposed to be involved in the Great Commission. We all share the gospel. You know, I'm trying to share the gospel at work and I'm trying to evangelize my friends. And that's great. That's great. That's great. But what have you put down to take up Christ and His work? Friends, these are convicting words mostly because I think in Singapore we have done a great job of telling ourselves it's okay to have everything at the same time. So I want God, but I want professional success. I want ministry. I want family balance. I want me time. I want rest time. I want good investment. I want good retirement. And all of this, let's have it all. Let's have it all. Friends, we can't have it all. Something we have to give. The words of Jesus today say that if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will see me as holy and you will see yourself as you are. And if you love me, you will take up my work. The things that matter most to me will be the things that matter most to you. And if they aren't, they aren't. Oh, let us stop deluding ourselves if we are not truly following Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, our text this morning is not about going into full-time ministry. Although if the Lord is calling you to go into full-time ministry, please do speak to the elders. <laughs> but this text is also not about jumping into lifelong missions, even though that is also a worthy calling. It is about following Jesus. Following Jesus means that His words, His person, His work, that's your life. You live what He lived for, you die what He died for. It looks like people making decisions about time and finances and relationships and their future, not on the basis of what they want or what works best for me, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and His gospel. The good news of the world, that He came to save sinners and did all that was necessary by dying on that cross and rising again so that we would be forgiven and reconciled to God. Like Jesus, we should be teaching the Word of God. We should be seeing ourselves and Him rightly. We should be sharing the Gospel more than we are. This means that practically, if you don't know His Word, if, you, if you're not growing in His Word, if you're not learning His Word, oh, please do. Please do. Grow in His Word. Learn how to share it with others. Get involved in community life. Not that makes you feel good about yourself, although that's also I mean, important, but get involved in community so that you can share Christ. And if you are a retired person, my dear uncle and auntie, you would love to partner together to know how to do this better. But we must spend time thinking about what it means to follow Christ together. C.T. Studd was a British missionary, a Cambridge graduate, with a heart for the nations, like Dr. Andrew Ng. He was one of the famous Cambridge Seven who presented themselves to Hudson Taylor in the earliest work for missions in China. He had four little girls, and as he raised those four little girls, he used to say that having these, God must have given me these four girls because in Chinese culture, little girls are not valued. And so he's given me these girls to, show, to give me an opportunity to engage the Chinese. I mean, that was how much he, he loved uh, uh, the Chinese people. But most famously, he left the words that I've replicated in your ministry guide. A poem that has launched many missionaries out. But I'm hoping that this morning, as we read these words, that they would weigh heavy on your heart that you would follow Jesus, leaving behind all things in order to take up Christ. C.T. Studd writes, Two little lines I heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life to soon be passed.
only what's done for Christ will last. Let us pray. Our Father, as we have come this morning to hear your word, Lord, you issue us a summons. You call us to put out into the deep, cast out our nets. We hear you and to obey. And as we gaze upon who Jesus is, Lord, we recognize you are the Holy One. We are not. And like the Israelites of old, like Isaiah, like Peter, we say, God, depart from us, for we are sinful. Oh, have mercy on us, O oh God, for we are a people whose hearts have run after so many things. And we love security more than we love you. We love comfort more than we love you. Oh God, we love ourselves more than we love you. But Lord Jesus, you've come to us and you've drawn close to us as you came and you came for Simon in that boat. And you've come to us and you say, I have a cross upon which I died. I have an empty tomb from which I rose. And Lord, you call us to follow you. Oh, Father, I pray that in these moments you would minister to us and cause your word to bear fruit. Oh God, we ask that in our hearts as you've stirred us, you've stirred us to consider and to meditate on what you've said. Follow me. We ask that you would help us in the strength and the courage that you provide to say, Lord Jesus, I will follow you. I will lay aside all that easily hinders and entangles and I will follow you. So that's the desire of our hearts today. That in this church, you would raise up men and women who would say, Jesus, I will obey your word. Jesus, I will respond to the gospel. Jesus, I will take up your work. Make it so. We pray this in your name. Amen.